Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to This Good Word. I have Rabbi Alan Allman back on the show by popular demand. And oh my gosh, it's so good. Hey, we're talking about Midrash, which is imaginative and I think expansive way of viewing the scriptures. And you're going to love it. You're going to love this conversation. Uh, he is brilliant as usual. And But here's what I want to say too. If you live here in the Twin Cities or near the Twin Cities, I'm doing a live event. I'm doing a live podcast at Art House North in St. Paul on Friday night, August 10th. And I'm going to talk more about this expansive way of viewing the scriptures as ongoing conversation with the divine instead of having to have the last word. So you can get uh, tickets by going to arthousenorth.com. Or you can just go on the show notes and uh, it's going to be so fun. I'm going to be joined by my friend, author Sean Smucker, author of The Day the Angels Fell and the brand new novel, uh, The Edge of Over There, alongside my dear friend, Stephen Heidi Haynes, who are um, who make up the band Tove Music. And it's going to be beautiful. Again, Art House North. So get tickets at ourhousenorth.com or by just clicking on the show notes here in the in the show description, and we're going to have lots and lots of fun together. So uh, enjoy this conversation and then get some tickets to my show. Love you guys. Uh, hello, Alan, my friend. Mm, good morning. It's been a long time since I've seen you, but also a long time since we've done this. Seems like a mighty long time. <laughs> And you are far and away my, I think this is the sixth time, maybe, fifth or sixth. So that's far and away the most times any guest has been on the podcast. But you're also the most requested guest. And so I get emails from people saying like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> there has been no <laughs> Rabbi Al You know, so sometimes I, I, uh, I, I pull up an old one just to, just to slake the thirst of the masses, really. <laughs> you know, just to give them just enough. Um, and on my Patreon page, um, so Patreon is, um, a way that people can support me, right. Mm. In my work. And so some people do. And so there's three different levels. And I think the first level, it's $2 a month. Mm -hmm. And the, 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 the title of the level is just in it for Rabbi Allen. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. So, you know, there you go. A commonwealth of ignorance. What can well, I tell you? <laughs> it's actually a pretty, pretty fine commonwealth to live in. So I want to get, before we get into this, I want to give people a little sense. Normally I record in my beautiful basement in, you know, just suburban Maple Grove. But we are on location in, <laughs> what are we, Corcoran, Annie? Yes. Yeah. Uh, we are in Corcoran, Minnesota uh, at the home of Jason and Annie Close. Hi, Annie. Hello. So Annie's uh, gonna be sitting in and that'll be fun. Mm. I've known Annie for, I don't know, 10, 13 years maybe. Uh, and so is Rabbi Allen, so here we are. And we're looking out, we're in this three season porch, four season porch. We're looking out at 40 acres of glory. Uh, and so if you don't live in Minnesota, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, suckers. Um, so we had a plan for this morning, and I think we're going to get there. I mean, I really do. But I also, uh, we started talking about this one subject, and then you and your beautiful seven on the Enneagram, uh, lots of options way, said, why don't we start talking about that? And so here we go. 
I have a love for Judaism. And I think it's because, um, and of course I'm going to be critical of my own tradition because I can, right? That's everybody's prerogative. You're most critical about your own tradition. And you should be. You should be. You should tear it apart. You should appreciate it. You should hang with it. But you should critique it. And so my biggest critique with my tradition uh, is we have a love for God's word, which we call the Bible. We also call that Jesus. Um, We also call it other things. But we have a rigidity with how we see the Bible. And that that makes us run into all kinds of problems because people, instead of seeing the contradictions and the questions and the horrible violence as invitations to go on a journey of discovery together, we try to solve those problems with our minds. And then we think we have solved those problems with systematic theologies. Mm -hmm. And then we go to seminaries and learn that one view. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you go to this seminary, then everyone knows you believe in this view. If you go to that seminary, everyone knows you believe in that view. And they may disagree with each other, but but you ha- there's a long list of things that you have to say. You know, in order to be this kind of Christian, you have to believe in many, 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 many things. And debate is seen as not enjoyable and mutual learning. It's to win. Right. Judaism, on the other hand, and this is not my tradition, so I can be more glowing about it than <laughs> probably is is you know warranted. But my understanding of especially Midrash, which I want to talk about, is that the contradictions are there for a purpose, for a reason. To, and it's not clear always what the Bible is saying. And there's hints and there's very clever nods to other passages that the writer wants you to go find together. Mm-hmm. And when rabbis get together... Uh, Halal and Shammai, they would disagree, not get together, but when they would write against each other, it was an argument for the sake of heaven, right? right? And so that is, there's a humility there, even if there's strong convictions, because if it's 70 sides of a gem that we're going to look at Torah, then it would be ridiculous to think that anyone could have the understanding. So I want to I want to tee that up for you to then riff on, but yeah. I know you're tracking so far. Yeah. Have I said anything that you would want to clarify or nuance or say? Well, okay, you got that seventy five percent right, but but twenty five percent. I would um, just start with um, Israel. So Israel, as a word in in the text, is introduced in Genesis thirty two, and it's introduced in the intriguing moment of a struggle of Jacob, well, the text describes him struggling with an ish, meaning a man. Most artists will paint an angel. Jacob himself will describe the experience as having wrestled with God. Um, And in a sense, you're right at the heartbeat at the beginning. Israel is defined in the text as one who wrestles or struggles with God and with people and is able. And in a sense, you've got the beginning of what I would call a theme that runs through the text that then runs through the writing of the prophets 
the psalmists and cues us to what will lead to almost inevitably midrash which is what I'll call just for lack of a better phrasing complementary juxtapositions not binary right but complementary juxtapositions so one who wrestles with god not enough one who wrestles with people not enough and is able so in other words it's not just me and god and it's not just me and people and it's also being able and it's a whole mix of things coming together so the climbing and since Israel is a verb and God is a verb we may have come to some sort of time of clarity in one season in our life and wake up in a decade later and actually we're back to the wrestle in, on a whole nother level yeah. and in whole other ways and oftentimes I, over the decades I've heard people say well it seems like I'm back here all over again to whatever it was 20 years ago but and in a sense it's true but in a sense it's not because we're actually in a very different place the issue is coming back to us but now we're over here with it rather than where we were with it but that idea which i think is so prevalent in western civilization which i'll frame as one and done i don't uh, yeah yeah graduation yeah and it's over rather than understanding that that's not the way scriptures actually or filing it or portraying it it's rather we're constantly coming to these wrestling moments and we have new challenges and that but the issue is still bubbling up again mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in other words if one thinks about the idea of hebrew which in hebrew the word in hebrew literally means to cross over well in two kings two the first time that um uh, Elijah and Elisha are in there. And by uh, Elisha, for Christians out there, think Elisha. Thank that's, you. That's I'll, how, I'll say Elisha. So people are going to be looking up in their Bible saying, yeah. where is A-L-I-C-I-A? Right, right, right. Thank you. So <laughs> say it again so I can say it. Elisha, but Elisha. it is Elisha, okay. but yeah, okay. I'm just, because people will go, what? Okay, Elijah and Elisha. And in their movement, they come to Beit Ale. Well, Beit El turns out to be the first place a Brahmin Sarai crossed over to when they crossed over into the Promised Land. Okay, can, can, can I stop right there? Yes, ma'am. So when you're in 2 Kings 2, yeah. and we arrive at Bethel or Beit El, yeah. the, the writer is going ding, 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 ding. So this is part of Midrash, and, and I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just interrupting you to say, like, most of us would just, would, well, many Christians, don't even notice that. Don't think that that's anything other than just a place. Oh yeah, maybe maybe I've read that before. But when you're saying the writer says, "Oh my gosh," in Two Kings Two, we're at Beit El. That's uh, where Abraham and Sarai crossed first, over when they cross over from outside of Canaan to inside of Canaan. One of the first places they come to is Beit El. Now Beit El literally means house of God. Right. And but like, where is the house of God? Right. right? Okay. Right. No, 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 no. Right. Well, um, and I won't lose track of what yep. we're saying, but you, you just asked one of those such yummy questions. Where is the house of God? Well, fascinatingly enough, Genesis 28, Jacob lies down in the middle of nowhere in a place that's unnamed with a stone for a pillow, has a dream. Angels going up to down ladder, Genesis 28. And then he wakes up 
and says, surely God was present in this place. And I, I knew it not. This is none other than bait ale. Yeah. So here comes one of the earliest clarifications on the idea of what is the house of God. Can I stop? Yeah. Okay. Now, this place, is that makom or hamakom? Yes. Okay. Yes. So the word, that word is used there too. So this place, hamakom, mm -hmm. is Beit Ale. But what is Beit Ale? There are no walls. There is no ceiling. No signposts. No signposts. He just... No welcome to Beit Ale, population uh, 13. <laughs> right. Or one. And, or a million. And what does it mean to wake up? And, and to me, this is another understanding of what does it mean to wake up. It's to wake up and realize that God was present in this place. And... I, I was not aware. And Exactly. Exactly. And he doesn't say to himself what he could say, which is, well, very nice dream, but where's my first cup of coffee? Yep. And where's breakfast? Yep. And incidentally, on a whole other level, it doesn't solve the problem of having done what I just did to my dad and having my mm -hmm. brother wanting mm -hmm. to kill me mm -hmm. and having my family sending me away mm -hmm. because they don't want me to marry from the Hittite women. So, yeah. But he doesn't say all that. Mm -mm. Nor He's, does the writer doesn't right, say all that. Right. He, and he just wakes up and that's what he says. So what does it mean to come? And in terms of Jacob, this is the first time he is enunciating in the text any connection to God. Really? Yeah. Okay. Can I go back in that story of Jacob? Yeah. So... <clears throat> um. I'm going to pick on Christians, but, but I, but it's not cause I, it's, it's cause I want us to go forward in the, in the story. I've let me just, yeah, don't lose that thought, okay. but let me connect this back real fast. So in two Kings two, uh, Elijah and Elisha, mm -hmm. um, are going to bait ale, but then it, the, that's verses like one through three and then four and five, they're going to Jericho. But the words, all the words in 1 through 3 and 4 through 5 are exactly the same, except for Beit El and Jericho. Meaning, everything that's said is just repeated. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, so, Beit El, that's the first place where family crosses over from outside of Canaan to inside mm. of Canaan. So, outside of knowing the one and living God to starting to know the one and living God. In 2 Kings 2. In 2 Kings 2, it's, but it references Genesis 12. Right. Or that's the hyperlink. Then Jericho, well, that's the first place where the 12 tribes cross over into the promised land. Ah, and now we're moving from, again, that outside to inside. We're crossing over. So now we're kind of getting an, a, a delicious exploration of what does it mean to be a prophet. A prophet can lead a family from outside to inside. And a prophet can lead a community from outside to inside. So maybe in my 20s, I solved the problem of my relationship with God, at least enough for me to go forward. But what does it mean to be in our 40s and suddenly have it not be my relationship to God, but our whole family's relationship or maybe our whole community's relationship? So it can seem like a problem is solved, but and it is, but it isn't. Yeah. And so trying to climb out of the idea of one and done. Mm hmm. And starting to move more into what I would call sacred time is one of the big conversations here. 
Okay, uh, so when we're talking about complementary uh, juxtapositions and complementarity versus not, binary thinking, which is this or that, it's one it's and done. It's not just you and me. Mm -hmm. It's not just your idea and my idea. It is that, but it's more. It's also my family, mm -hmm. your family, our families. But it's not just that. It's also where are we in sacred time? Yes. And one of the things that's so missing is that we tend to define time in a linear sequential sense. Without rooting ourselves in sacred time, then it's very hard to understand where we are. Because okay. linear time is one and done, graduation, right. getting married, 21st wedding anniversary, we, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Even though I want to suggest that all of us on some deep level know that it isn't like that at all. So I'll try to be very specific. We're friends with somebody and we're friends with somebody and then something happens. Maybe it's a huge epiphany moment. Maybe it's a huge argument. It could be, but, and suddenly we look at each other and say, oh, now we're really friends. Mm. So what were we before? But well, we were friends, but now we've come to some other plane. But it's as if to say, oh, now that's the end of our friendship. And now we're just going to live at that plane of mm -hmm. friendship forever. Mm -hmm. But no, not really. Um, so it's that idea. And we'll probably, if we remain friends on this plane, come to a point where there'll be the next type of epiphany or the next huge struggle. Yeah. No, and I'm, I'm thinking of a friend exactly where we used to be best friends. Yeah. And now we're really dear friends. Yeah. And people ask me sometimes, are you, are you back to where you were? You know? And I go, well, no. Yeah. Because that's the wrong question. Right. You see, oftentimes I hear people in what to me is a parallel equivalent phrasing say, I want to get back to the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I would say there's no way to the Garden of Eden by going back. Yeah. Also, there's not necessarily any way by going forward. I would use the word in. So because you keep placing yourself in linear sequential time, if you say back or forward. All right. So, so I'm trying to climb out of all of that. What you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that when we look at some of the major metaphors of scripture, uh, Beit El, house of God, um, the promised land, the wilderness, uh, the Garden of Eden, instead of seeing those places as literal physical only, right. you can see them as literal physical, they move with people. They, you leave, you can leave the wilderness and keep moving and find yourself in the wilderness once again, and maybe even dealing with the same issue, but it's not the same issue. It's the same issue on a deeper level. So you continuously, so in my book, Whole, I, I really, I primarily describe the journey from Egypt to the wilderness, to the promised land. And, um, one of the way, one of the, when I feel proud of that work is when people ask me that question, well, do you, do you think I can be in the wilderness more than once? And I'm like, yes, right. That's what I was trying to, you know, spend 223 pages writing. <laughs> um, so part of what you're saying is in order to understand 
our lives and scripture and God is that when we read the, the, the living word, we, ha- we are invited to read it as having major arcs and themes that move throughout space and time in a complementary, juxtaposed way versus one and done, in or out. I left the Eden and I'm going to this place and I'll never, and I don't need to go back anywhere. Um, even though the places that I have been will visit me from time to time where I have been going, right? uh, All right. So, um, but you had something else you wanted to get. Okay. So, um, back to Jacob and the story of, so, um, and Genesis really is fascinating because I think it's laying the building blocks of the whole story. So you can see Genesis as a prequel, right? I mean, in many ways, that's, that's, that's like you have to understand the major themes of Genesis. So one of the things you've helped me see is Genesis is all about brothers are fighting brothers. You know, you have uh, the first brothers, Cain and Abel. Then you have Jacob and Esau. Before that, you have uh, Ishmael and Isaac. And finally, we end with, with Joseph, who forgives his brothers. And that's the first time a brother seeks the shalom of his brothers. And that's really the whole, I mean, if you were to nail down the trajectory of God's people anyway in Genesis, it's what does it mean to seek the shalom of your brothers and sisters instead of see them as enemies and continually fight with them. But back to Jacob and Esau, we're still trying to figure that out, right? We have these twins that are are in uh, um, Rachel's, Rachel? All of a sudden I'm blanking. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Rachel. And and then pause on that. So Rachel's pregnant with Jacob and Esau. But go forward to the story. We all know uh, Esau sells his birthright. Jacob tricks him into doing it. Jacob tricks his dad into thinking he's Esau. So he gets the blessing. Isaac, his father, is blind. So he gives him the blessing. But he kind of knows. And he's sort of... He's blind. Does he know what's going on? Does he not know what's going on? He blesses Jacob. So Jacob is the blessed one who will carry forward the thing. I've always, always been taught that Rachel, what a manipulator. Because Rachel's the one that whispered in Jacob's ear. uh, You mean Rebecca. Rebecca, yes. See, I knew I was right. Rebecca, um, or I knew I was wrong. Rebecca, Jacob and Esau's mother whispers into Jacob's ear, uh, you know, put on put on the hairy garment, pretend you're Esau, so that you'll get the blessing. And what a manipulator. And Isaac is blind and sort of an old dotard at this point, but no one really... Well, the, but here's my thing, yeah, right? Yeah, please. Um, Christians don't read the part of the story where God tells Rebekah, that Jacob is the one that should be blessed. Yeah. God tells her that. And it's really clear. It's right in the scripture. Exactly. And so instead of seeing Rebecca as a manipulator, I've come to see her as this amazing, strong, subversive, but doing the only thing she knows how to do and still love her husband and love her family. She has to find a way to follow God in a patriarchal society where she has no voice and she has no, 
And so she comes up with this brilliant way to do it. And to me, that changes the whole story. And it doesn't make anyone bad or wrong or, you know, Isaac or, you know, it's like, this is complex reality. Like, is there manipulation? Sure. Is there, um, but is there fallen God? Yes. Do you know what I mean? So like, so to me, without Midrash, I never would have gotten there, you know? Um, so react to that and then take that where you want to take it. But, but I wanted to give people a real struggle that I have had in trying to interpret this idea of there's only one way of seeing, seeing the scriptures. So, wow. There's so much there where to start. <laughs> and yeah. get, can, can I say one thing? So we say, God is in control. God is in charge. I say we, meaning Christians. God is in control. God is in charge. Um, God's will will be done. God is sovereign. But then you, you hit an, you know, like you can see the train wreck about to happen in this story. Esau's the firstborn. And he's probably a sweet guy, but he's, everyone can see that he, he's not going to be able to carry the story into the future. He's just not. I don't know why. Maybe that's unfair, but he, you know, so, so, so how are, how is this all going to work out? That's what we should be asking. And we're only, I mean, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we're, we're like, the story's about to end in a train wreck. I mean, it's so early and yet it's almost all over. So please, I've been talking for too long. Yeah. But th those are the things that, yeah. that make me, number one, love talking to you, but number two, appreciate the ideas of Midrash and so where it can take us. Let's do a quick trajectory, hook back into something you said earlier, and then come back to this particular moment. So the trajectory will lead us to Joseph and his brothers. And the brothers... Um, cannot say a word of shalom, uh, shalom uh, peace or wholeness to Joseph. Joseph is sent to see to their shalom. So that's Genesis 37, either verse 4 or verse 5, um, that they cannot say a word of shalom. Um, and then he gets the calling from his father Israel, Joseph does, to see to the shalom of his brothers. That's Genesis 37, verse uh, 13 and 14. And then... The brothers do what they do, uh, throw them into a pit, sell them into slavery. And now we're in Genesis 50. And the brothers, for the very first time, in a way, say they're sorry. It's the very first time anybody said they're sorry in the book of Genesis. And we're in Genesis 50, and there's been a lot one could be sorry for. So, but the brothers so say awesome. they're sorry. And then Joseph says in uh, Genesis 50, verse 21, some beautiful words, yeah. which I don't want to unpack just because of time. Um, but it's what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Yeah, is... Uh, which becomes a cliche for Christians. Anyway, keep going. Um, God, I'm, so, I'm so harsh on Christians. Sorry, everybody. I love you, really. I'm just trying to make sense of it all. Well, and the very last part of Genesis 50, verse 21 is, which means, and he spoke to their hearts. Mm -hmm. So we then turn the page, and we're suddenly no longer in the book of Genesis, or we roll the scroll. It's Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, or verses 1 through 5. And there are 12 siblings and 70 
people in all who went down to Egypt. So that's Exodus 1 verse 5. And but what it says fascinatingly enough in Exodus 1 verse 5 is it says Shivim, which is the word 70, Nafesh, which is the word Nefesh, which is soul or whole being, singular. The 70 are one. They're described not as having 70 souls, plural, or 70 whole beings, plural, but 70, singular. That's how we know that true reconciliation has transpired. We are now 70 and one. Okay, so I want to make it so obvious for people to make this link. What has made them one? What happened in Genesis 50, because Genesis 50 is the very, those are the very last yep. verses. The brothers are reconciled, which brings us back to Genesis 4. The first word that's used to describe Abel when he is born is that he is a brother. And then after Cain kills Abel, the question becomes, where is your brother? And the answer is, am I my brother's guard? Mm -hmm. Incidentally, that's the word that's used in Genesis 2.15 to describe half the mission of what we're doing in the garden. We are to work and guard. King James will translate it as till and tend. Whether it's tend or guard or keep, you could also translate it that way. It's the word shamar. So, am I my brother's guard? Am I my brother's uh, to keep my brother or to tend? Yes. So we've been watching this trajectory moving through about how we are to be with our siblings. And it's, it keeps being over and over again, kill, exile, threaten to kill, exile. And then the brothers in Genesis 37 are debating between shall we kill him or shall we exile him? So in Genesis 50, when that reconciliation takes place, it basically brings to a close the story of family. And in Exodus 1, we're starting to think about being a community. And, yeah. yeah. And can I add, please, just quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The reconciliation is not just, I'm sorry, it's okay, I forgive you. It's, you were starving, I've fed you, right? You didn't have a home, now I've given you a home, right? I mean, it's... it's well, it's, you intended it for evil, God intended it for good to save many lives, and I'm just saying it's bigger than just... Right, but the thing I'm, that I'm sort of moving away from is he says, am I in place of God? Got it. So if I but, say I gave uh, it to got you, it, got it, got it, got it, got it. that's again relocating back in the eye. Got it. Rather in the juxtapositions of, oh yes, some things have transpired here. God was in it. Of course you acted. Of course I acted. But there's all these God other things. God brought reconciliation. Yes. And that's what made us one. Yes. And okay. now... You started at the very beginning uh, this morning with talking about um, 70 facets of the gem. Mm -hmm. Well, here's where the 70 facets uh, of the yeah, gem yeah, starts. Yeah, yeah. Exodus 1.5, they are shivim nefesh, or nafesh in the Hebrew, but nefesh. And how many people are going to go up and have the experience of God in Exodus 24? Well, it's 70 elders will go up. To the mountain, into the cloud. right. Oh, so that will lead to a midrash that says in the first century AD, there are 70 facets or 70 ways of seeing God because, and that's what it means for all of us to see. 
Now, I think on some deep level, we all know this. No one of us is the alpha and the omega. Everybody would agree on that, I think. But having said that, what does it mean to understand that there's really a lot of different ways, and you talk about this a lot, you say a symphony is better than a monologue. And I just couldn't agree more. What does it mean to get the varied voices into the room as we are in study, in worship, in prayer, in, and not just have it be one voice talking? So, but that all stems from the fact that sacred reconciliation begins when we can all be one and that's where community starts so if i've read the other 69 voices out outside of the out of my community so it's only you and me yeah um yeah binary now yeah. we're back to binary yeah and i've also read myself out of the trajectory of sacred history and i've read myself out of the trajectory of sacred time yeah 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 okay so it's interesting if the whole living word was Genesis, then the whole story would be the family's together and we're now we're done. We're done. It's great. Right. Heaven on earth, promised land. <laughs> we're back in the garden of Eden, but Exodus one, <clears throat> they, the, <laughs> the Egyptians have forgotten Joseph. There's a new King in town. Right. And now we got to figure out how to be a family while we're enslaved. And how to become a community right because we leave egypt as families each family has to put exodus chapter 12 has to put the blood on the lintel of the doorpost each family is a family but it really means more clan than family but okay each family as a family has to leave but we're leaving to go out to become a community okay but let me do one quick thing here if it's okay i love it i just have so many questions that i'm dying to ask but please do it okay. i trust you so there's a but way. it is my but it is my podcast. It is your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be clear. <laughs> we should stop. You know what? Can we stop and ask if Annie has any questions? Please. Oh gosh. Annie, writing I'm notes. Just writing notes. I'm got, taking it all in. I don't. I'm okay. just really. Well, you just it stop us. Yeah, stop us. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so you were gonna say. So, thinking about the five books, just for a minute, Genesis through Deuteronomy. If you pick it up with Exodus chapter 3 and go to the end of Deuteronomy, basically it's 40 years. Really? Yeah. Exodus chapter 3, Moses is standing at the burning bush. He's about to get the call. He's going to go back to Egypt and lead them out. So basically... Hamakom, by the way. Yeah, Hamakom. Yes, yes. The very place. Good. Yeah, the place. <laughs> Genesis 28. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jacob's dream, Hamakom, like yep, you said. Yep. So anyway, it's only 40 years. Genesis chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 2 is everything up until then. Which is how, how long? Do we, do From we know? the very beginning. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you want yeah, to say it yeah, is. Yeah. Um, so I want to suggest one way of reading the book of Genesis is this is everything you need to know to understand where you are. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we talk about a lot which is, is... Which is why we, we called... Our church genesis <laughs> go ahead a lot of times i hear people talking about i got to tell you my story i want to let you know my story 
But then the story turns out to be maybe the last 10 years of their life. Mm -hmm. That would be like literally one half of one verse. Yeah. Of the, of the scriptures. Yeah. That's not your story. Yeah. If that's where you start your story with your birth, that's not your story. Yes. Your story goes way, 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 way back. Yeah. And to see yourself truly well is to see yourself in the river of a huge tradition. Mm -hmm. Meaning, like we were just doing something real quick where I was asking you to not say, I fed you or I this. But I just asked you to really step out of a whole bunch of things. And this isn't the starting point, but it will be attributed to Descartes. But I, I don't actually know that Descartes said it. I think, therefore, I am. Mm-hmm. Well, we're now back into <laughs> a very long time ago, hundreds of years ago, and the start uh, or the growth of how the Renaissance and the Enlightenment became focused on the individual. And we will think that identity is individual. Yeah. And having lost what I would call the radical dimensions of identity that really are transcendent rather than imminent. Mm -hmm. So learning how to think well about our lives is another way of thinking well about, well, what's actually happening here? Well, where do I say the beginning is? The beginning is when I, I, I was born, (laughs) or is the beginning way before me? Mm -hmm. And trying to understand oneself in the river of that. Yeah. Do you think people are starting to wake up to that a little bit? I mean, like, even with, you know, the Ancestry.com, people are getting the swabs of their cheek and then they're sending it in and then they find out they have Welsh ancestry. I mean, I, I hear a lot about people, you know, it feels like maybe some prehistoric desire to to know that I am bigger than me is waking up in people. Have I told you the story about, um, I'll say his name is... Um, Herbert. Yeah, Nick. Uh, So this dates from the early 1990s. There was a gentleman in his uh, mid-30s at the time from Ireland. His family's from Ireland. Uh, Grandparents, all grandparents from Ireland. And he's studying with me occasionally. And he's looking for something. Something's not there. But And he's very athletically talented. He's very good in his work life. Great marriage. Everything's beautiful. Something's missing. And his last grandparent, um, all his grandparents are from Ireland, from the same small town in Ireland. And his last grandparent and his grand, this grandmother has been saying for years, I want you to go back to the town where the family's from. And he's gone, I don't want to go back to the town. I don't want to go back. Anyway, she's now on her deathbed. And, and she's about to die. And she says, oh, it's so good that you're here. I just have one last thing. Will you honor my last request? And he says, from his whole heart, of course, Grandma, whatever. you." And she says, I want you to go back to the town where the family's from. And then she literally looks him in the eyes and dies. (laughs) You know, crazy stuff. But there it is, real life, so much better than any story. And now he's stuck. Yeah, he where? has to go. Yeah, yeah. Now he knows where the town okay. is. He's been told about it for years. It's a town of maybe two or three hundred people. And I'm but he's got to do it. I mean, he's got to do it. Yeah. And his name is O'Connell. And he goes back to the town. He he walks into a pub, 
And everybody in the pub turns and says, oh, you're a member of the O'Connell clan. They just know. He looks like yeah. an O'Connell. You know, most of the O'Connell stayed. Just, you know, a few of them left and came to America. And they take them all around the town. And this is where your ancestors have been buried for the last 2,000 years. And this is where so-and-so, and this is where so-and-so. And he now literally goes to Ireland every year, hmm. goes back to the town. He actually has a home there. And you know that thing that was missing? It wasn't his marriage. Mm. It wasn't his relationship to his kids. It mm. wasn't his work. It mm. wasn't his athletic activities. The thing that was missing is that deep-rooted landedness of home. Mm -hmm. It's like you can't go forward until you go back, right? I mean, you just can't. But you can also see that as now I now I've done that. You know, no, like you can. So he goes back every a year. A whole new set of relationships. Yeah. That have uh, that are now part of his life. Yeah. And now, you know, oh, there are problems. Believe sure, me, there sure, are problems. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. I, I, I already feel like I've divulged a lot of the story, but and I want to respect this person's privacy. But, you know, that was in the mid-1990s. Yeah. So that's already like 23 years ago that this right. all happened. Well, believe me, stuff has happened in the last 23 years. But it's a new set of problems. He's not looking for that thing that was missing anymore. But then you get to go on and develop all the new sets of relationships and all the new sets of realities. So, so again, what I'm trying to get at is there's this huge history. Yep. Think about Genesis and why do we keep yeah. limiting ourselves to a very narrow, almost non-existent past when there's this deep past. Yeah. So therefore maybe there's a devastating mistake that I've done. And I did it. I really did it. And I'm defining myself based on that mistake. Right. Rather and, than understanding it. Yeah. Which is part of what's beautiful about the scriptures is because there are so many examples of people who made devastating mistakes. And yet it's not what defines them. And it's not, it doesn't stop the story from moving forward. It doesn't stop the river from flowing. The river's always flowing. River's flowing. All right. So, um, Alan, can I ask you... Because um, we've mentioned the word midrash. And it's so fascinating because we've studied for so many years together. But you've never explained the four steps of midrash to your people. You just do it, right? But can you please, Peshat, Ramez, oh, yes. so, Midrash, and Sud, can you just, sure. j like in like a minute, yeah. if you can, yeah. explain where it came from and what it is? Well, there's... The understanding that um, rabbis from first century uh, BC on will start to develop to think about how to study the text. Um, there's four dimensions. And as you think about it, it we're again in this complementary juxtapositions again. Shot means the straightforward level of the text. Just what's the plot line? which actually isn't always so easy to see. I'll give a quick example of that, but not. I'll just do the definitions first. Remez, what is the text hinting at? Um, uh, so, pshat, remez, and then drash, the ethical, moral teachings of the text, or the To drash. search, right? It means yeah. to search, right? Yeah, to seek out. Yeah. And then sod, the mystical teachings of the text. Now, if you take the first four letters Pshat, Pei, Remez, Resh, or R, Thrash, um, the seeking out uh, of the teachings, and the Sod, 
the S, the mystical teachings, those, that, those first four level, letters are called pardes. Pardes is the word that means orchard. And it's the mystical orchard in which you're inside all of it. So one of the ways that I like to see this is if you could imagine a room filled with gems everywhere, everywhere. But let's just make it 70 to keep with. So there's 70 gems, but each is a different color from the other. And suddenly one lights up. And then it emits a beam of light that is its color. But then you look at it and you go, oh, that's connected to that gem, which then lights up and emits color. But when those two colors come together, they become a third color. But then that connects you to another verse, which then emits a beam of light. And when the light all comes together, it's yet again another color. Now, each one is authentic, but when you see them together, you see more. Yeah. So there's a way that there's a symphony, whether you want to call it a symphony of sound or a symphony of color that's accessible to us when we study the living word and it's alive. And of course, it looks different at different times in our lives as we're going through different experiences, dimensions, phases. But let me give an example of why even the term plot line or the most simple level is not necessarily so straightforward. <laughs> so here we are in Genesis 11 verse uh, 32. The days of Terah came to 205 years and Terah died in Haran. That's 11.32. Here's 12.1. And the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your native land, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will cause you to see. So it sounds like Abram is leaving Haran after his father died. In his father's Terah. In his father's Terah. Now, so, and that's how most people will read it. And that would be called Pshat, or the straightforward, yeah. simple level of the text. Or the plot line. But here's where suddenly it gets a little richer. Here's a, this is Genesis eleven twenty six where we learn that when Terah had lived 70 years, he begot Abram. Oh, so when Abram was born, his father was 70. Now, we're... So people get your calculators out. Yeah, right. So and, Literally. And, and 70, literally. And then in verse 32 of Genesis 11, we learn that Terah was 205 years when he died. Okay. But then in Genesis 12... Verse 4, we learned that Abram was 75 years old when he left. Ah, so when he left, 75 and 70 would put him at 145, meaning Terah was quite alive when Abram left. So what God is asking Abram to do is go forth from his native land, his kindred, and his father's house while his father is still alive, not after he died. And there resides why even the simple plot line of the text ain't so simple. Get that, not being clear about that will lead you to be unclear about all sorts of actions in real time and will lead you to misapprehend honor your father and your mother. Mm -hmm. One will absolutely misapprehend that verse. And in fact, I just led to the problematic in the sense that the verse actually says, honor your father and your mother that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. 
It's not honor your father and your mother, period. It's honor your father and your mother so you live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And that statement in Exodus 20, verse, I believe it's 12, honor your father and your mother, actually is given at Sinai. Meaning, whom is one honoring? The parents who left Egypt. Meaning if, if the parents stayed behind, you actually had to do exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, which is go even if they stayed. But they didn't stay. Yes. And, okay. Um, in well, the time, there's a midrash about that. Yeah. So the midrash goes like this. There were, in Egypt, the word Egypt literally means narrow place. The word Hebrew literally means to cross over. And in the midrash... Well, we know in Exodus 16 that some Egyptians left with the Hebrews. But yeah. if the Egyptians left with the Hebrews, the Egyptians definitionally become crossovers. They become Hebrews. But in the Midrash, it's just offered the thought that some Hebrews stayed in Egypt. Oh. But if they stayed in Egypt, then they would be definitionally narrow placers. They would be definitionally Egyptian because we're in, these are not biological denotations. They are states relational states with nature, self, other, family, community, and God. Again, it's not just binary, it's... Okay, I'm sorry. Well, no, that, that, that just raises so many questions. But in the time of Abram, to leave your father and his household is what? It is incredibly radical. Because you're leaving... Well, first of all, you're leaving clan, which means you are definitely now in isolation in a world wherein clan is identity. But also you're leaving your long-term disability plan, your mm -hmm. social insurance plan. I mean, you're leaving everything. It's And um, no one knows you're in O'Connell, wherever right. you're, it is that you're going to go. Um, but also, like, now that I'm fast-forwarding to the parable of the prodigal son who leaves his father, but with the insurance plan. Like he takes the money. Thinking that that's gonna provide the security. Right. Abram leaves without the security plan. And that's the major difference. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why even the elder son in the parable of the prodigal son also doesn't get it, you know? Yeah. And so the beautiful part about the, pro the parable of the prodigal son and the elder son to me is it highlights the goodness of the father who both lets the younger son make the mistake and lets the older son make the mistake. Both of them are thinking the same thing, that the security is what their their security is yes. versus the father's love, right? And, and with Abram, it's like, and we don't, you know, part of what's beautiful about Abram is that we don't we don't know any history you know like we meet him essentially at age 70 we don't know right. you know i mean we don't know who he's kind of an unknown guy he's an un like who who is this guy um well you've just defined what i think is one of the characteristics of scripture and i wouldn't really make a delineation between torah and new testament on this i think it runs through the old text most of the time, in most of the passages, there's no concern for the backstory on a personal level. 
Right. On a historical communal level, yes, but on a personal level, no. Most of the passages begin with the first meeting with God, or the first hunger for mm. the first meeting with God. Mm, mm, mm. That's where it all begins. And understanding that that's where the stories start is, once you get that, in other words, was the person tall? Were their eyes blue? You just, what the, was the color mm. of their hair black? Mm. It's just not in there. Mm. What's of interest, in other words, what makes up most TV and movies and most things that constitute entertainment is all about all the stuff that ain't in mm -hmm. scripture. Mm -hmm. What's in scripture is, oh, this is the first time I started to cry out to God, or this is the mm. first time I met God. Mm. And now suddenly we're talking. Mm -hmm. And when you start to notice how little is in the text about all these things. Um, Part of what I love about that is then it allows you to put yourself there, you know? Um, one of the stories in the newer covenant that I love is when the two disciples are walking after Jesus has died and they're walking seven miles to Emmaus and one of them is Clopas yeah. and the other one is maybe the writer, maybe you, maybe your son. Right. It's an unknown person, but now you get to be in the conversation. Yeah. So Midrash, I, I want to say this too, and I want to tell you that we have about 10 minutes, okay. maybe 15 if we cut our walk down to 25 minutes, but let's, <laughs> let's, let's shoot for 10. Um, my understanding is Midrash, as you said, was developed around 70 AD after the temple was destroyed. It, you know, it probably existed in some form or another before, uh, for about a hundred some years before that. But in terms of something that's starting to be recorded, yeah. 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 And Midrash is both an interpretive method of scriptures and a collection of writings, the Midrashim. So, agreed. And basically, <laughs> it was literally people sitting around who we now term as rabbis, but not the way we would think of it because everybody was working at a real job back in the day. Um, in fact, nobody actually got paid for being a rabbi until about four or 500 years ago. Mm. So, so think of real people doing real work yeah. and they're getting together by the and, way, I think that's the future of Christianity too, pastors and such. Yeah. It's not going to be 400 years from now. It's going to be 40 years from now. But so people going. sitting around and saying, you know, there's nothing about X in this passage. So let's play. Yeah. Let's think about whatever the thing that is missing that there's nothing about that we want to think about in this verse or in this passage. Like... Um, what was Rebecca thinking mm -hmm. as she heard that her husband who had grown old and his eyes has grown dim is about to give the blessing to Esau when she knows that she knows because she heard from God that it's Jacob. What is Rebecca thinking? Midrash time. Yeah. Um, and all sorts of ideas, incredibly playful ideas, far more playful than we'd ever dream of being nowadays. Um, in terms of the kind of ideas yeah. that people will say, well, maybe she was thinking this, or maybe she was thinking that. And really my whole thing of telling a story to try to illustrate an idea comes from Midrash because suddenly they're telling these wild 
really, I mean, my stories are all pretty bland and pretty vanilla and they stay in the box compared to the kind of stories those folks are telling because their sense of story and whimsicality was, yeah. was far greater than we would tend to give ourselves permission to go to. One midrash I love on the Garden of Eden in the beginning is, um, flows from the question of why in the world did God put the tree that you weren't supposed to eat the fruit of? Why? That seems so unfair. And the Midrash essentially says, well, at first, God didn't put that tree in there. And the people never matured. The people remained essentially immature babies without the freedom or temptation to, will I choose this? Will I, you know, can I reach for that? Will I allow myself to reach for that? They never grew. And when I heard that the first time, I thought, oh, that's beautiful. I mean, no. Did that really happen? That's totally the wrong question. Who cares? It's a way of saying, what if? It's a way of trying to understand. So I met Sandy Eisenberg Sasso mm -hmm. finally at this mm -hmm. festival. And um, I know you studied with her, right? Yeah. And, um, yeah. and she, classmates yeah, oh my gosh, I love her. Um, yeah. But she has a, a riff or a midrash on the story of Cain and Abel, which she asks the question, why did Cain... Why was Cain's offering not accepted? And everyone has, well, it wasn't the first fruits. Well, but then she says, well, the text doesn't say. It absolutely doesn't say. Exactly. And so where she goes is the story of Cain and Abel is essentially a story where you're invited to ask the question, what do you do when you are treated unfairly? How do you react? You know, is God treating Cain unfairly? I don't know, maybe, but I feel like I am sometimes. So will I strike out on anger or, you know, will I see to the shalom of my brothers? And then all of a sudden now I'm in the story in real time, you know? So I want to just go into that for a second longer because the dilemma of Cain and Abel on one level is there's information that is available that we don't have, not because it isn't there. Cain means gain. Right. Abel means vapor. Now, gain brings an offering. Vapor brings an offering. Vapor's offering finds favor and gain's doesn't. Thinking about all of that. Now, I'm not saying it necessarily answers the question, but without thinking about all of that. But now we're in the Ramez level, right? The hint, because the, well, we're looking at the names. Well, you see, Are we the, in the I'd say we're still in the shot. Okay. okay. Because it, it, it's because the translators, you see, we're yes, in a 400 yes, yes, year yes, decision. Yes. The yep. King James translators make a decision not to translate names. So we read Cain. They would have read Gain. They knew it was Gain, and they knew it was Vapor. So, so how do you see Gain and Vapor? How do you see the meanings of those words? Okay. I see this as a conversation running through all of the text, um, meaning Deuteronomy 8, uh, man does not live by bread alone. Oh, it's not going to be enough to gain bread. Um, there are people who will say, I'm doing this to feed my family, whatever that this is. And it, and it could be perfectly legal. I don't mean it as anything illegal. But if that's all it is, that's not going to be enough. What you do with vapor, what, what you would do with what I would call the sacred intangible. Uh, is that how you define vapor? That's the sacred I, intangible. Yeah, yeah. 
And the reason why I do that now, this I would put in the category of bordering on Midrash, is that Vapor's offering was accepted. Okay. So I, I've got to deal with what the words literally mean. But you see, denying the reader that information, which is core to understanding mm -hmm. what's up, mm -hmm. and core to understanding um, something that's going to be, I think, critical in understanding how Christians in modern life think when they use the term Holy Spirit. But that's going back to vapor. So, and even for that. The sacred intangible, would you define, could that be a definition of the Holy Spirit? Uh, to me, it would be a, a dimension. Of, a dimension. A dimension. Because it has to come from God and it's moving through the creation first. In other words, Ruach Elohim is moving through the whole creation. Mm -hmm. And then it's moving through us. So it's going to be, and this goes back to that complementary juxtapositions, there is a sacred intangible, not just moving through me, not just moving through you, not just moving through our families, not just moving through our communities, but moving through the whole physical reality. And when we are infused inside of that, ah, now it's very different. And that's what I want to suggest is a dimension of what Jesus is saying when he says being in the world, but not oh, the world. Yeah. Because when we're of the world, we're worrying about the gain dimensions. Mm -hmm. But when we're in that other world, which is both outside and inside it all. So what you've done with, which I love with Cain and Abel, is transcended individuals who had a problem with each other and moved it to the, the archetypes of the pursuit of gain versus the dependence on the, the sacred intangible. When I start to ask the question, this feels unfair to me, I usually, not always, but really frequently know I'm barking up the wrong tree personally. That question will not lead me anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so, because it's putting usually, not always, but at least speaking personally, incredible percentage of the time, it's putting me at the center of the story. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me push back on that with our one minute left. And by one, I mean five. But um, I, I actually think it does lead you somewhere. Even if that somewhere is, oh, well, that didn't lead me anywhere. Now well, I have to. Fair now enough. I have to find something better. Fair enough. And I want to say that because I think people, in my opinion, and this is my tribe, my tradition, Christians, which you know so well, but they actually need to be given permission to ask the elementary questions like, I feel like I was treated unfairly, even if all it leads you is, oh, that didn't lead me anywhere. Now I have to ask a better question. And, I th and I'm not trying to be nitpicky, but I do think no, that, I, that, I that, 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 yeah. So when you're Look, maybe- if, if you are being abused mm -hmm. and you've come to think that that abuse is normal, then yeah. it would be really good yeah. to realize that this is actually unfair. Yes. Yeah. So I, I completely yeah. agree. But I also want to say, like, I know you, and I just would 
put you in the in the in the category of Richard Rohr and others that oh, to you. <laughs> no I would I would I mean and you wouldn't but I but I can I say that I <laughs> but I can say that and you and Richard Rohr and others well yeah you wouldn't you've learned to not ask that question but you probably did when you were 30 you know right but but so and that's why I'm reflecting yeah, I know that. I know yeah but but I'm trying to I'm trying to give some I'm trying to help people not think oh shoot I'm bad if I right. thought that absolutely which wasn't what your thought was right your, your thought is just hey c- come with me to the to the pond of beauty versus the slime hole of you know that that's not okay if you need to get dirty for a while in the slime hole i'm gonna stand with i'm, I'm gonna sit here and, and drink my tea with you for as long as you need to but eventually yeah. eventually we, we gotta walk over here to something more beautiful and that is that's what you've done for me and so many people um in fact i people react after studying with you for a time first of all they're like oh my goodness Right, Andy, like, oh, their minds, you know, and, and how I intro you as like, mm-hmm. hey, when your mind splatters on the on the walls, let it, mm-hmm. let it, let it blow. Don't don't try to fight it. But then you know this, then they get mad, not you, but at their their past because they never learned all. They they never knew there was this multi dimensional chessboard to play on. Yeah. They never knew it was playful. Yeah. They never knew it was expansive. They never knew it was about the sacred intangible versus, you know. In fact, many realize the religion I've sort of centered my life around is more about gain, you know, than it is about the sacred intangible. Um, And the Bible I've come to believe in has gotten so constrictive to me because I haven't been taught that it's 70 you know, like that, the, the gems and the light. That's so beautiful. Um, okay, so that was my last statement. Mm. Um, do you have any last things you want to say? No, it's just been, it's such a joy to be together. Mm. So grateful. So grateful. Annie, any last words? I do. Just taking it all in. This has been wonderful. I'm so honored to have you guys here and come back. Anytime. Mm. Yeah, this is going to need to be. Um, yeah. Well, um, I think this, maybe this wasn't. So, uh, r- listeners, here's what uh, um, I would encourage you, honestly, to listen to this again because I know the speed that this was happening and I was interrupting. And, mm-hmm. uh, but. No, we were just talking. So it went real, real, real quick. Go back, listen to it again, stop it, and write some notes down. But um, here's what's fun. Honestly, I love it when people email questions of like, you talked about Midrash, but I have this question. Um, You email me, Steve, at steveweens.com, and, you know, pose your question. Um, and, and we'll just keep the conversation going and, um, we'll have Rabbi Allen back. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, if, if you're new to this good word, just cycle back through the, the earlier episodes. I, I really do think there's at least five, um, episodes. So if you haven't heard, uh, go back 
and then go on Patreon and give me two dollars a month because you're just in it for Rabbi Allen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys. Okay, uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody, and um, in it together. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.